Hustle Pursuit is a podcast for people ready to make the most of every opportunity. In the race to success, we're not all starting from the same place. Level the Pursuit seeks to fill in the gaps and provide accessible, bite-sized leadership lessons for anyone looking to improve their skills and prepare for the next step, whatever that might be. Last week, we talked about learning from hypocrisy and negative situations. Life often teaches us lessons when we're least expecting them, and many come in the form of painful experiences. When we can turn those interactions into an opportunity for growth, we can not only become better leaders, but we can take an active role in our own development. Did you get a chance to spend some time thinking about a negative interaction? Was there a lesson there after all? If you did, that's fantastic. If not, keep looking. The more you look for chances to learn, the more you're gonna find them. Today, we're gonna talk about belonging and connection. As people, we all wanna find a place where we fit in and feel valued. But as leaders, we have to actively cultivate this feeling for ourselves and for our teams. We have to find ways to build connections to create an environment that produces the most effective team. Respect and inclusion are important, but they aren't enough. To reach our full potential, we have to show people how important they are to our collective success. Over the next week, find three ways to make someone feel valued in your life. Whether it's work, school, or in your own home, show someone they matter and that you care that they're around. So what does it mean to belong in an organization? To belong is to be able to be yourself and feel respected, included, and valued for your contribution and the unique perspective that you bring to the team. When we talk about respect and inclusion, by the letter of the law, we're talking about not discriminating, about equal opportunities for promotions and projects, about being equally invited to work events and casual conversations. We're talking about applying the same standards for hiring, retention, and development for all of our personnel, regardless of any individual attributes they may have. So why isn't this enough? Well, you can do all this and still make people feel unwelcome. It's like back in elementary school when the cool kids are talking about something and you don't know what's up, so you walk over. Now, in elementary school, I was not a cool kid. I was a smart kid who talked too much, and I didn't have the nicest clothes or things. So I'd go over and ask, you know, what they're talking about. Now, I'm from Texas, so for the most part, we're polite, even when we're rude. <laughs> so I remember a situation like this, and the queen bee of the group saying, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about my party, so... Uh, I mean, I guess you could come if you want, because I know about it now, so she has to invite me because that's the rules, right? But everything about her clenched teeth invitation said that if I tried to show up, she'd release the flying monkeys on me, so I knew I was supposed to say no. But by the letter of respect and inclusion, she did the right thing, right? Because that's what we're supposed to do. So belonging connection is that next step. It's wanting people to show up. It's making them feel comfortable in their own skin and able to be themselves. It's a feeling of connection so that they can be honest if they're not able to give their best and they can be secure in support and acceptance when they can. It's a soft, amorphous, messy, complex feeling. And it doesn't happen by accident. So besides all the human interest aspects of this, we're talking about business here, we're talking about success. Well, belonging is important because multiple studies have shown that it increases productivity, profit margin, and satisfaction at work. So even if you don't care about people, if you care about having a good business or a successful team, you still need to think about this. If diversity is having people who look different at the table, 
then belonging is creating the situation where they all get a chance to speak. And when they do, everyone listens. Belonging amplifies our perspectives so that we can make the best decisions and retain the best people on our teams. You can see why this would be a positive thing. I mean, as a human being, you know it's more comfortable to feel like part of the group. So you can understand why others would want this as well. So why don't we do it? Well, sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes people try to exclude others from their group. It can be based on fear of disrupting the current dynamic or losing relationships on the team. If you've ever been on a really tight team, it is an amazing feeling. But underlying that, there's also this fear that something's gonna jack it up. While a new person coming in is definitely going to change the dynamic. And the threat of tanking something that is fantastic can make people desperate to keep any disruption at bay. And they can be pretty rough in trying to keep you out. It can also be rooted in insecurity that new people might be competition for opportunities or standing within the group. We all have our roles in a team or in a group. We, we tend to fall into these patterns where we behave the same way. But if someone comes in that behaves the way you do or has the same strengths that you do, you may not be the smartest or the funniest or whatever your role is. You may not hold that spot anymore with this new talent. And that can be kind of threatening to people's identity conversation that they have to find a new way of interacting themselves, especially in a group that they've already been part of. And it can be rooted in a bias that the new person isn't qualified or prepared to participate in a way that's value added or meaningful to the group. There's an aspect of this feeling in many gender focused or affirmative action programs and people's reactions to them. I know when I entered the fire department, our physical test was different uh, between the men and the women. So we did a, a Cooper's test, which is the run, the sit-ups, the push-ups, but the standards were different for men and women. There were guys that brought it up every single time we did PT, and it was so annoying. I remember one morning, I smoked this dude on our run, like smoked him, like minutes faster. And he was like, oh yeah, well, you had lower standards to get in. And I'm like, really? That's what we're going to focus on? But it was something for him to focus on. He didn't want to focus on the fact that he was insecure and nervous about being fit enough to fight fire, which is a really dangerous job, and probably a little bit that he got beat by a girl. But it was so much easier to focus on these other things and make me feel excluded in that moment. But part of the benefit of increasing diversity is that in addition to adding new perspectives, you also increase the team's exposure to different types of people. And that opens their aperture for what a competent and valuable teammate looks like. As people who look and act differently are brought into our spheres, it becomes less novel and more comfortable for us to interact with them. And the attributes we have in common become more prominent than our differences. As we have more experience, we actually get better at seeing individuals. So the more people we meet, the better we are at seeing them as individuals. When I've worked with teams who've never had a female surgeon, everything I did represented all female surgeons, whether that was accurate or not. That's how all surgeons do things, all female surgeons do things. But as they get to work with more of us, eventually it's gonna be this is how Mary does it, and she wears these gloves, and she likes this instrument, just like that's the way Adam does it, or Josh, or, or Mark, any, anyone else. It's not going to be that all women surgeons do this certain thing, and that'll be a good thing for everybody. So this is complicated enough when we're talking about overcoming one difference, but what about intersectionality? 
Intersectionality is the recognition that people can be affected by multiple forms of bias and that these can be additive to create a unique experience for each person or group that experiences it. So gender, race, socioeconomic status, country of origin, language, accents, sexual orientation and identification, religion, all of these things, they can all be factors in the discrimination that people experience. But many of us fall under multiple categories, and that can mean an even harder time for people because they can be additive and honestly, they can be exponential sometimes. An understanding of how these factors can add up can also help with the discussion of bias. I've had friends who fall under one of these categories and they're not able to understand why others can't overcome them in the same way. Like coming from an underprivileged background, they can't understand why everyone who's from the, an underprivileged background can't overcome everything, but they don't understand that there are lots of other things that come into play. So think of it this way. You're running the 400 meter hurdles and each industry or career field has a lane. Each of these factors that I just described is a hurdle and the industry gets to decide how high the hurdle is. Then the gun goes off and we all come out of the blocks. If lane one is investment making and you're a white, middle-class, gay, Christian male, you have one hurdle, maybe two, and they may not even be that high. Honestly, when they meet you and talk to you, they may not even know to put the hurdles up for you. But lane two is aeronautical engineering and you're a black Muslim woman whose family emigrated when you're a child, so you still have a hint of an accent. Well, you have four hurdles, and judging by the fact that there's only 20% representation of women in engineering, those hurdles are pretty freaking high. So is that really the same race? Now, I'm not trying to demonize any particular group or minimize the very real struggles that people go through to achieve their goals, and they are all relative. But we need to understand our experience is just that. No one walks the same path, and we all have to start respecting that and understanding that what we've been able to overcome does not mean that someone else will be able to overcome it in the same way. Another aspect of intersectionality is this very specific identification can create boundaries where they may not exist. Now, that can be kind of a good thing sometimes. The people in the group can be more inclusive and can actually forge really tight bonds of this shared experience, but it can also alienate people who are not in the group. Remember, belonging is a relationship and that requires commitment on both sides. So finding support with people who understand what you're going through in some way is crucial and everyone should have that regardless of, of your situation. But if it encourages you to discount the experiences of others or to exclude yourself, well, that's the exact behavior you were trying to overcome to begin with. So you need to look at that a little bit more closely. So some people ask, why not just go where you know you belong? Now, Aside from the obvious racist, sexist, and otherwise exclusionary undertones to this sentiment, let's look at it objectively. How do you know where you belong? You might choose to surround yourself with people who look like you or sound like you. Some careers will take you to a place where you're around people with the same education, the same degree track, and that can also create similar patterns in problem definition and problem solving. Culture, ethnicity, and exposure to travel can create totally different paradigms and expectations. Your family unit, the number of parents you had in your home, whether you're raised by your grandparents, the number of siblings and where you are in the sibling order, socioeconomic status, those can all affect your interactions and your worldview. 
And all of these things are happening at once. So which one do you choose? Now add to that the inherent cognitive diversity of our own intellectual processes, the one we're born with, the, one, the way that we think from the time that we're in the cradle. And along with that, the interactions of intersectionality we just discussed. And you can see it's not that simple. But even if it was, we have shown time and time again that bringing in new voices, new thoughts, new blood into our industries, bringing in people that don't quote unquote belong is good for our industries. It makes us more productive. It makes us better at what we do. So why would we not want to do that? But you look at all these things and you realize that you couldn't do it even if you tried. <laughs> I can think of times getting together with my colleagues and spouses in the past and uh, and there's all this, uh, this expectation that I'm supposed to go talk to the wives because the women go in one place and the men go in another. That's what I'm supposed to do. But as a childless female at the time with a husband a thousand miles away, I had literally nothing in common with them. The dudes are all talking about work, about cases we did, about cases I did. And I'm sitting there listening to their stay-at-home spouses talking about how often they pump in the best schools in the area. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I think being a mom is awesome. And they were all intelligent people, but I had nothing to contribute and I wasn't really interested. And to be honest, I didn't have kids, so they weren't really interested in me either. So it was kind of a frustrating situation to be in. So I'd sit there because if I gave up and went over to my coworkers to actually talk about something I knew anything about, it wasn't uncommon to catch a side eye from the wives. And I'm like, girl, I don't want your man, but it's a no-win situation regardless. I had no good options. So those were pretty painful experiences. I felt that a lot growing up as well because I was a smart kid and an athlete and I had a cultural background that didn't match my skin color. And so, I belonged a little bit everywhere, which means I didn't really belong anywhere. So what's the answer? How do you cultivate belonging for yourself and for your team? Personally, the first step is to accept yourself and all of the things that make you unique. Many times the rejection or discomfort we feel is actually a reflection of our own fears or insecurities. So own your greatness. You are a badass. Don't forget it. Next, you need to understand what belonging means to you. Not everyone needs to be invited to every party or appreciated for every memo. People have different ways of feeling love and appreciation. So you need to understand your own feelings. If you're an introvert and you just need someone to say thank you now and then, don't get froggy that they went to lunch without you, especially if you didn't want to go anyway. I mean, it's good to be aware of your situation and know what kind of interactions are happening. But don't go looking for reasons to be upset with people. Once you decide what you do need, open yourself to being part of the group. This might involve reaching out yourself, talking to someone, or sharing your desire to participate, or maybe having a heart-to-heart -heart with your supervisor. And that can be really hard to make yourself vulnerable like that, but you have to try. The thing is, people can't read your mind. And you might think, well, it's common courtesy, but remember, they don't understand you and you don't understand them. They grew up differently or have different ways of thinking or different customs. And that's why we're here to begin with, right? So you can't expect them to just figure it out. When I think of this, I think about a discussion I had in college about dudes opening the door for a lady. As a Texan, I love it. I think it's very gentlemanly. And to be honest, I kind of expect it because that's the way I was brought up. 
But some of my northern friends thought it was totally misogynist. And they're like, I can open the door myself. Which, of course, I would respond, well, so can I, but I'm polite enough to appreciate when someone does something nice for me. (laughs) But if you're the guy, what do you do? It's a small thing, but the small things add up. A lot of our cultural and social expectations actually are small things, but they're so ingrained in us that they're part of how we see ourselves and part of our identity. So it's okay to want those things to be accepted, but you also have to accept that their expectations might be different. And so it might take a minute to get your expectations and their expectations lined up to a place where you understand each other. Opening to the group also can be really hard if you have that smaller peer group that I talked about. You have this group of shared experience where you really rely on one another. It can be very hard to open that up. And sometimes there may be members of that core network who make you feel bad or like a sellout or that you're turning your back on them for trying to join the larger group. Now, ultimately, it's your decision how to handle a situation like that. You have to do what you feel is right for you. But I will give you this advice. Anyone who encourages you to separate yourself from the majority that runs your organization may not have your best professional interests at heart. Understanding and being part of the organization is a positive career move, and it doesn't have to mean losing your unique identity. In fact, the point of diversity is keeping those different perspectives. But in a nutshell, you cannot lead a group if you don't let yourself be part of the group. Finally, and and this is the hard one, try to understand them as much as you would like them to try to understand you. Even if you are the vast minority, remember, the majority group is still made of individuals who have their own thoughts and their own personalities, even if it doesn't seem like that. Even if they seem totally consolidated, if you try to get to know them on a personal basis, three things can happen. You can slowly create positive relationships within the group, You can gain a better understanding that will help you relate and integrate your own ideas into their dynamic. And you can create allies who will have your back if conflicts do arise. And that's really important. There's not going to be always be, it's not always comfortable to be able to stick up for yourself or include yourself in things. So it's really helpful if you have a couple people you can count on to do that for you. But how about as a leader? We talked about all of these reasons why people might exclude others on purpose, but sometimes it's not intentional. They don't mean to, they just don't do anything to increase inclusion either. They rely on company policies or hiring or just who shows up and they don't actually try to create personal relationships. We as leaders have to create those connections if they aren't there organically. First, you might wanna try to identify who's feeling excluded. I say recognize people that identify, but otherwise I think it's a waste of time because honestly, way more people feel like this on any given day than you would ever guess. Some people are obvious about it, but many are really good at staying under the radar or even putting on a happy face and looking like everything's okay. So looking around and seeing people that are smiling, that's potentially a good thing, but you can't assume that everyone feels included and supported. Don't try to sort it out Just try to make everyone feel connected. Ask people how they feel and then listen sincerely. Empower the leaders below you to do the same. Encourage your colleagues to do the same. Obviously, if someone identifies themselves as feeling excluded, you have to address that. But I'm just saying, 
don't stop there. If you have low morale in an area, you can presume that many of them do not feel valued. So focus on the team dynamic. If you can, reorganize their workspaces. Now I realize sometimes there are limitations with the actual space and furniture and functions of the team, but try. Build time into the day for focused interactions. Create meetings, give them time to interact with one another. Especially if you have people in cubicles or small offices, create reasons that they have to interact with one another. In meetings, create situations where everyone's voice is heard. Now I'm a huge believer in the power dynamics of meetings. Um, I've seen the seating and positioning of different voices make a huge difference, so I always try to disrupt it. I like it to be different, and I don't like it to encourage the traditional uh, power hierarchy, which is not always popular, but um, but I like to mix it up. Um, I had a job where the only other female and I that were in leadership positions, or two women in the room that were in leadership positions, our seats were right next to each other in the meetings at the foot of the table. And it was super frustrating to me because if one of us supported the other's idea, the group just heard a single female voice or the girls have a thought, the girls are ganging up, rather than two educated, independent leaders who also had similar views on a subject. So because of this, in, in my personal staff meetings, I always like to have people sit in different spots and I encourage them to do that. Now that's hard to do because people are creatures of habit and so they will try to sit in the same spot every time, but I did try to get them to change spots. And I also took the time to get every person that came to a meeting of mine a chance to speak. I also actively called on people who I knew were super sharp, but not as aggressive in bringing in their ideas. Now, I will say, if you do this, make sure you warn them that you're going to do that because it freaks people out to be put on the spot when they're not expecting it. And if you're trying to encourage their voice, you don't want to make them gun shy to show up or, or freak them out. So, you know, set down ground rules before you do something like that. But, you know, if you have experienced people, putting them on a little bit of pressure is not necessarily a bad thing. Next, ask your people, especially those who might feel marginalized, what they would do to fix it. Ask them what they would do to mentor others. Ask them how they would improve the inclusion and the sense of belonging in your unit. Create teams to implement their ideas as much as you're able. When you can, empower them to be part of the solution. Their ideas will be relevant because Not only are they feeling those emotions and so they really know what would help them, but their sense of belonging will increase because they are part of the changes. They are part of making the unit better and they have the validation of impacting the organization in a positive way. So they're getting kind of a why out of this as well for themselves. But you're not always going to have somebody who comes forward and says, this is the problem and this is how we can fix it. You may just have to try to create this feeling of inclusion in your organization yourself. So how do you do that? Well, to start off, you have to be vocal about your beliefs. If you believe that everyone is valued and that they deserve to feel included, you have to be very vocal about that. And it starts from the top, but if you're not at the top, your your voice still matters. You can't expect your actions to be enough because the, the thing is, not everybody that you lead will necessarily get to see you taking action on these things. And so the words can substitute when you don't have an action to show them right at that moment because you can't expect them to read your mind. You have to stand up for people when it comes up. You have to be a vocal ally and you have to make a point of of valuing all of your people, but you may not always have opportunities to do that. You will have to create them, create opportunities to recognize people and to make them feel welcome and part of the organization. But your words have to really back that up and they have to be consistent. You can actually use mantras to do this. So 
however you feel about being part of the team or the importance of the organization, the more that you say that, the more it will stick with, with people. This has been shown in kind of politics and social science. You can say something about someone enough times, and even if we all know it's not true, it will still stick to that person, and you will still make that uh, that association in your head. So you can use that in a positive way. If you continue to say things, even the naysayers, even the people that don't want to buy in, will still to some extent buy in because psychologically they will start to associate those positive things that you're saying about the team with the team itself. So you can create a better sense of value and belonging just by repeating the fact that you think it's there and you think it's important and that the people on your team are important to you. And finally, you have to be active in getting your people involved. Now, I'm not advocating for more meetings. I know I said create reasons for them to meet, but I don't mean necessarily adding bureaucracy to your organization, but create moments for people to get involved. And whether that's events or lunches or informal things, it doesn't really matter, but creating opportunities for people to get involved and then going. You have to go. As the leader, you have to go and you have to make that part of your advocacy for this. Now, in the military, this is an issue we call it forced fun and people don't like to do it. But the fact is, getting to go and see people that you work with in a different light, be able to eat with them, be able to have fun with them, be able to be in an environment that's not stressful, is a really positive thing for building that sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps. So, Obviously, you want to choose events that people actually want to attend, but you have to find ways to get people engaged. And if you have a very diverse group, if you have lots of different ages, lots of different ethnic backgrounds, lots of different cultural heritages, all of those things, take that into account. Think of different ways. Celebrate all of those different things. Don't expect everyone to want to do this one thing when you know that they're all different ages and different backgrounds and and different interests. So find ways to to incorporate that. And then give personal invitations. There are a lot of people that when they get a mass blast email or something impersonal, they think it's for someone else. Even if they even if it's to them, you just don't feel personally invited, personally cared about. So go around and talk to them and tell them how important it is that you get to see them. Tell them that they're valued and that they're part of the organization. Make a point, and if it's not you, then make sure someone does. But someone should touch base with these people, especially the ones that you're concerned about, but, but really everybody. They all, we're human beings. Everyone likes to feel valued. Even if they don't wanna go, even if they don't wanna be part of it, there's still something to be said for someone asking. It still makes people feel more included if you ask, even if they can't, even if they don't want to. So make an effort. It's not personal if they don't. I mean, it could be personal, I guess. But in general, it's not personal if they don't want to go. But they still deserve the invitation. If you care about the group and you care about the people, then make the extra effort to make sure that they feel like part of the group and they feel as though you care if they show up. So that's what you do if it's accidental. If the organization just needs a little bit of help with trying to create inclusion, what do you do if it's intentional? If you have people that are actively trying to exclude members of your team, that very much depends on your organization's policies and procedures, uh, because that can be in some institutions, a zero tolerance, you're out the door kind of situation, or it can be something that is worked on and rehabilitated. How you choose to handle this obviously will deal with your leadership style, the type of infraction you deal with, and the policies that you're working under. But in general, you need to find out why someone's behaving the way that they are. There are 
very often things that are totally changeable about people's behavior. If someone is working from a place of insecurity or worry about their own position or worry about their progression in, in the team or in the organization, those things can usually be fixed by helping them understand their, their role. If they are truly a star performer, then they will continue to be one more than likely. If they were not to begin with and they are actually have a reason to feel threatened by this new person, then that's probably a talk they should have already had to understand their true uh, potential and their role in the organization. But you do have to address it. You cannot let something like this just fester and because it's disruptive not only to the person that's experiencing it, but you'll have a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with the dynamic. Now, hopefully you'll have some people on the team that choose to speak up and say something about it, but depending on the tenor and the overall morale of your organization, you may not. And these types of things can become very bad very quickly. Even if people are ganging up on one person, that can create a negative dynamic very, very quickly. So you want to address that as soon as you find out and you want to get the heart to the heart of the matter as quickly as you can. You cannot allow someone to be treated this way. And honestly, in this day and age, there's no reason. We have such understanding. We have so many opportunities and so many resources. There's no excuse for allowing someone to feel this way. So you have to, as a leader, address this quickly and definitively. Now, if you can, obviously you want to rehabilitate and mentor the person that is causing the problems because they are still a human being with feelings. But if you can't, as much as possible, you should remove them from your organization because if someone chooses not to change, you cannot fix that. So if you want to create inclusion, you cannot allow someone that is intentionally excluding any member of your team. So businesses function every day without worrying about this stuff. But I'm telling you, cultivating belonging is worth the time and energy. Have you ever seen the video for Blind Melons, No Rain? If you haven't, you should, because it's it's an awesome video. It's, it's so uplifting. It makes me really happy. I'll put a link um, on my website. It's www.levelthepursuit.com. But the basic premise is a young girl trying to find her place, and she's being rejected again and again and laughed at, and she finally finds where she belongs. And she gets down each time she strikes out, but then she regroups and puts a smile on her face and keeps on dancing, and it's amazing. But to me, this video gets to the heart of belonging. The group that she finds ultimately could not be more different, but they are mobilized and bonded by the shared purpose and acceptance of one another. When people belong, there's a psychological safety in the workplace. When people feel safe, they're more resilient and they're more willing to take risks and accept challenges so they will push the envelope because they know they're supported. That security and trust can take your team so much further if you're willing to take the time to create it. This week, create a sense of belonging for three people in your life. I know with COVID, you may not have a ton of outside contact, so do the best you can. If you're at work or school, make someone feel valued. It's easy to do this with someone you already like, so maybe push yourself to try it with somebody you don't have a great relationship with. At home, rechannel some of our mindfulness discussion and be truly present with the people you care about. Make them feel valued. Building relationships is never a bad thing. Best case, you have a better relationship. Worst case, you practice skills to better connect with someone that you actually do care about. that's been our discussion of belonging on Level the Pursuit. 
Thanks for joining, and I look forward to your comments. If you like the lessons on cultivating connection, please give it a like or subscribe. If you didn't, please comment with what I could do better. Next time, we'll talk about the importance of building a network in your path to success. Mentors and coaches are vital, but having a peer group you can count on can push you forward in so many ways. We'll talk about how to create your network, ways to maintain it, and how to support each other as a team. Don't forget to cultivate connections this week and head over to www.levelthepursuit.com to share your insights and your successes. I can't wait to learn from your thoughts. Thanks again for joining Level the Pursuit. While we can't choose where we start, we can choose our dreams and how we pursue them. Remember, success is a team sport and there's room for all of us to achieve our goals. So be a good leader, be a good follower, and do something great.